Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Jonah chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting a new book, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. The book of Jonah is a very unusual book. Most of the other minor prophets write about their visions and prophecies, but the book of Jonah is about the prophet himself. It is the story of how a prophet of God attempted to refuse the call of God on his life. It is, in that sense, a tale of repentance and a lesson about how God's people are often far less inclined towards mercy than God himself. The story takes place during the 8th century BC. We know that because Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25, as a prophet working in northern Israel during the time of Jeroboam II. That means that Jonah was operating alongside of Hosea and Amos and just one generation after the prophet Elisha. Now, northern Israel was in steep decline during these days. The the dynasties in the north were generally very short-lived and succession tended to be bloody and chaotic. There were no great reforming kings in the north like they had in the south. And so the north tended to look an awful lot like the nations. We have this idea in our head that, you know, in the Old Testament era, northern Israel, Israel itself was this uh, sort of marvelous model of the worship of Yahweh. But of course, that wasn't the case. Uh, There were many people who worshiped Yahweh, but there were many people who worshiped like the nations. And in fact, as we read through 2 Kings, we come to the impression that by this time, there was very little true religion left in the land. Within 20 years of Jonah's mission to the capital city of Assyria, northern Israel would be paying Assyria tribute as a vassal state. In just another 20 years, Assyria would defeat Israel destroy their capital city, and scatter their people to the four corners of their empire. There is a reason that we talk about the lost tribes of Israel, and it is because Assyria ground them into the earth like dust and scattered them to the winds, never to be heard from again. That happened in 722 BC, and just one generation before that happened, Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, to encourage them to repent so as to avoid the destroying wrath of God. Now, do you see why the story is in the Bible? This is not just a story for kids about a whale and a funny-looking prophet. This is a story about the darkest mysteries of providence. Why would God use an evil empire like Assyria to punish and destroy his own people? Why would he force a prophet of Israel to go on a mission of mercy to those people when he was not planning to show mercy to his own people? Why does the will of God so often work contrary to our own hopes and expectations? These are just some of the questions 
that we are forced to wrestle with as we consider this beautiful and majestic work. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, as I mentioned already, Jonah was a contemporary of Amos. Now, whether they knew each other or talked to each other, the Bible doesn't say. But it is interesting to note that in the book of Amos, God is also concerned with the behavior of other nations outside of Israel. The book of Amos actually opens with a series of judgment oracles against other nations. Now, when you read those, you notice right away that God does not hold those nations to the same high standard that he holds his covenant people to. He holds the nations to a more basic standard. He expects them to live by general principles of justice and decency. The oracles against the nations in Amos have to do with excesses in war and cruelty to women and children. God does not overlook such things, even among peoples that have no particular knowledge of him. I think that's important to notice, and I think that's encouraging to notice in our day. In Amos, we learn that he holds his covenant people to a much higher standard, but he sees and he judges the nations. So here, God sends the prophet Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the sole superpower on the planet at that time. And his job is to tell them to repent. And if we compare with Amos, then we might imagine that they are being called on to repent of their excesses in war and their general cruelty to weak and vulnerable people. We know, for example, from history that the Assyrians made use of terror tactics to keep their enemies at bay and to keep vassal states from rising up against them. They would punish a city by ripping open the wombs of pregnant women and bashing babies against the city walls. They did all kinds of terrible things, and it's perhaps reasonable to assume that these were the sorts of abuses they were being called to repent of. But as we learn in verse 3, Jonah didn't want the job. He refused to go. The text says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, no one is exactly sure where Tarshish is, but most scholars assume that it is somewhere in Spain. The point then is that Jonah boarded a ship going in the exact opposite direction that he had been called to go. He he wanted to put himself beyond the reach of God. If God was going to preserve Assyria from judgment, let him use somebody else. Now, Jonah didn't think that God wouldn't see him in Spain. That's not what he was thinking. But he did think that he wouldn't be able to send him from Spain. That was the plan. But as we see, it was a fool's errand. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I love what Matthew Henry says here in his Puritan commentary. He says, Sin brings storms and tempests into the soul, into the family, into churches and nations. It is a disquieting, disturbing thing. How very true. Verse 5 goes on to say, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down 
into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, he was fast asleep, no doubt, because he was exhausted from his battle with conscience and duty. It is a very hard thing to turn away from the Lord. Jonah, no no doubt, thought himself condemned and damned beyond all redemption. He was a prophet of God. He knew that he would be held to a higher standard, and he knew that he had rebelled against a clear word from the Lord. He simply could not do what God had asked him to do. He would not be the instrument of God's mercy to the Assyrians. He hated them. This would be like a modern-day evangelical being asked to sneak into an ISIS training camp in order to warn them about an impending drone strike. No way, he thought. Let them burn. Let them be destroyed as the wicked, evil monsters that they are. And if he had to die so that they too would die, then so be it. Even if he went to hell, it would be worth it if they went there too. That was the anguish of soul that Jonah was in. And it is no wonder that he thought to escape it in sleep. But it was not to be. Verse 6 says, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, the book of Jonah is filled with wonderful irony, and we see a sample of it here. Jonah is a prophet of Israel. Okay, Israel is a kingdom of priests and a, whole, and a holy nation. Their whole job was to petition God on behalf of the nations. But like Israel as a whole, this prophet has been disobedient and has neglected his calling. The nations are in peril while the priest and prophet sleeps. And it takes a full-blown pagan sea captain to return this runaway servant to his duty. Get up here and pray, he says. Pray to God that he might have mercy on us. Do your job, you wicked and neglectful prophet. Verse 7 goes on to say, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, notice two things quickly. First of all, notice that Jonah says, I fear the Lord. Some translations will have that as, I worship the Lord. But the verse literally says, I fear the Lord. That's the Hebrew word, yari. And it means to fear or to reverence, to be in submission to. That's a useful word. And I would hate for us to lose it because I think contemporary evangelicalism is rank right now with people who worship the Lord, but who do not fear the Lord. Jonah at least understood that what he was doing in disobeying the Lord was serious business. He expected it to cost him a great deal, probably even his life. He was a rebel, but he was not facile or glib. He knew that it was a fearful thing to reject the word of the Lord. 
Second thing I want you to notice is that he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and the dry land. Again, Jonah did not think that he could escape God's notice or authority by going to Spain. No, no, no. He, he just thought that he would now be too far away to be recruited to this particular mission. He knew that God was God everywhere, and now the sailors knew it too, and they are afraid. Verse 11 says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I I love what Martin Luther says here in his exposition of Jonah. He says, He admitted his fault and cleared all the others. This is what contrition does. It makes the world innocent and yourself only a sinner. That is so well said. A truly contrite person, a person who is really repenting, doesn't blame others or list causes, excuses, or reasons. He simply says, this has happened because of what I did. I alone am to blame. And this is our best indication so far that there may yet be a future for Jonah after all. There is always hope for a man who truly repents of his sin. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice here that whether Jonah wanted to or not, he ended up doing exactly what God had commissioned him to do. He was functioning as a missionary to the nations, unwittingly here, but quite successfully. All of these pagan sailors begin worshiping the one true God because of Jonah. One way or the other, my friend, you will accomplish God's will for your life. You can do it the easy way or the hard way, but you will do it. As Jonah learned here, verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is the part of the story that we tend to focus on a great deal. Some people find this aspect of the story disqualifying, as if it were somehow beyond God to prepare a fish that could swallow a man and deliver him alive three days later. Now, fundamentally, this comes down again to whether you believe in God or not. If you believe in a God who created the whole universe with the breath of his mouth, then it is no great leap to believe that this same God could prepare a fish to deliver the prophet Jonah. Maybe he kept alive somewhere in the depths of the sea, some great sea monster from the prehistoric age. I don't know. But this doesn't stretch my faith in the least. If God can create the universe, then he can prepare a fish capable of preserving and transporting the prophet Jonah. 
After all, this isn't a story about everyday occurrences. This is a story about the breathtaking mercy and mysterious providence of Almighty God. This is a story about the power and grace of God breaking into the world and into the heart of this particular prophet in marvelous and unexpected ways. So, of course, it contains some miraculous elements. How could it not? Jesus accepted those elements. And he said that this Old Testament miracle, in many ways, foreshadowed and anticipated the climactic miracle of the New Testament. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said, that just as Jonah was swallowed by the whale and buried in the heart of the sea, so too would the Son of Man descend, as it were, unto death and hell, only to rise miraculously and altogether unexpectedly on the third day. He too would preach repentance to undeserving people, and he too would bring the mercy of God to the nations. As it was in the Old Testament, So it was, again in the new. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Before.